ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Well, at this time of the year, if you're a sea person, you probably spend a lot of time in waves, surfing them, swimming over them, diving under them, being dunked by them. How much do you actually know about the journey of a wave from being a windblown ripple to breaking on the beach? Dr. Shane Keating is an Associate Professor of Applied Mathematics at University of uh, New South Wales, based in Sydney. And he uses maths to measure, model and understand the oceans. He was on, as I said, late last year, chatting to us about ocean currents and how they work. And I'm thrilled that he can join us again in studio tonight to talk about how waves work. And a bit later, he's also going to talk about the art of card shuffling. There is lots that you can do with a maths degree. Now, as I said, questions, one three hundred eight hundred 800 2 or you can SMS 0467 722 Shane, welcome back. Hey, Suzanne. Great to be back. Let's um, tell me the story of a wave. When we see a wave breaking on the beach, how far away did that wave start? Yeah, it's incredible, you know. Um, waves are formed thousands of kilometres away, even tens of thousands of kilometres away uh, from where they break on the beach, and they travel enormous distances across the ocean without changing very much. Is it the same water, or does the wave tra- transform through different water? That's right. No, it's not the same water. Mm. It's and wave is waves is an energy, right? So mm-hmm. it's it's actually just um, energy moving through the ocean. It's not the water moving. In fact, the water in a wave really only moves about a meter or so from side to side and up and down. But of course, it's sort of passing that energy on to the next little patch of water, to the next patch of water, and on and on and on. It's kind of like a baton relay across the ocean. That's right, way, passing yeah. passing that energy across. So what starts it? So waves are born when wind blows over the ocean and creates little ripples and that creates a little bit of friction so that the wind can kind of pick up the wave a little bit more and increase its height over time. Of course, the biggest waves that we get are formed by storms, typically cyclones, hurricanes, and these travel across the ocean uh, in wave trains, in packets of waves. So you get lots of waves moving together over long distances. Now, when they start off, you know, when they're created by a storm, it's very chaotic looking. There's no real order at all to those waves. But amazingly enough, by the time they arrive at the beach, they've ordered themselves into these beautiful, regular patterns. Now, the reason that this happens is because water waves have a very special property. They're called dispersive waves. Mm -hmm. Now, what that means is that the waves travel at different speeds depending on how long the wave is, how far apart the crests are. Now, that's a little bit unfamiliar to us as human beings. Mm -hmm. A typical wave that we think about might be something like a sound wave, Mm -hmm. right? And when I speak, uh, the waves of different wavelengths and different frequencies all travel at the same time, uh, same speed. So when you get a picture of a sound wave, it's very regular. It's going up and down in a regular pattern, but a wave isn't necessarily like that. Well, waves don't have to be like that. So for a sound wave... Deep notes travel at the same speed as high notes, and thank goodness they do, otherwise you know, <laughs> talking and music wouldn't make any sense at all. Water waves are different. So you have long water waves, waves with a very long wavelength, travel faster than short water waves, waves with a short wavelength. Now, what does that do? Well, think about, I like to think about the, the city to surf, right? So you've, mm-hmm. you've got a whole bunch of people starting off at the same place at the same time, right? And they're all running at different speeds. But by the end of the race, you've got all the fastest runners at the front 
and all the slowest runners at the back. They've sorted themselves out because they travel at different speeds. Exactly the same thing happens with water waves. Okay, and then you have a wave of runners finishing at a different time. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Now, if you're a surfer or if you're a close watcher of um, waves at the beach, uh, you might have noticed that waves will arrive in a pattern, a swell will come in and it'll, it'll have a nice long uh, uh, time between waves, maybe about 15 seconds or 18 seconds or longer. The next day, you'll see that the waves are arriving at a slightly faster rate. And the next day after that, they'll arrive at a faster rate again. And again, what's happening there is that the shorter waves are at the back of the pack and they're only coming in a few days later. Wow. So, so you're saying that that family of waves, though, might have started moving off together? All together, they might have all been created by the same storm, but the long waves, the waves with the longest wavelength and the, with the longest period, have raced to the front, and they're the ones that we see first. The waves that are shorter are at the back of the pack, and they're the ones that come in last. Wow. Okay, Dr Shane Keating is here, Associate Professor of Applied Mathematics at uh, the University of New South Wales, based in Sydney. So how small... Can, can the catalyst for the start of a wave be? You've said it's maybe a bit of wind whipping up some ocean. How much do you need to get a wave started? Not very much. I mean, a wave will, a, a ripple will be formed by even relatively small changes in the air pressure or relatively low wind speeds. But of course, you've got to keep applying that wind mm. over time in order to be able to big, build up a big sea, as we call it. Yeah. Okay, so if you start with a small bit, there's a bit of a ripple, it might not go very far. It might no, you need out. to have the wind being applied for a long time. So okay. you need wind blowing for a period of time. And so um, we'll actually often measure waves and the state of the sea based on the age of the wave. So you'll actually kind of measure how long the waves have been there because they've been blown up by the wind. Okay, uh, half of this is <laughs> having to think about this quite hard. Okay, so does... If, if So a wave might start, a wave might travel maybe a thousand kilometres and then it's not having any more um, wind picking it up and it might die? or it might... No, so that's interesting because the wave can be created and it'll be built up over maybe a few hours or maybe a few days by, by a, a cyclone or a storm event. But it doesn't need wind to keep moving, right? Mm -hmm. it, it's again this idea of just it's water is... Uh, lifting up and moving down and moving kind of in circular patterns and passing energy onto the next little patch of water and passing it on with very little loss of energy. And in fact, um, scientists have made measurements of these waves and they've tracked them for tens of thousands of kilometres all the way from um, Antarctica, the Southern Ocean, enormous storms in the Southern Ocean, uh, until they crash on beaches in Alaska. No, really? Yep. That's incredible. With almost no change. The biggest change, of course, what they see is that there is a change in this timing between the yeah. waves because of this dispersive property. Okay. Now, I'm getting lots of SMSs coming in already with questions, uh, actually. Something I'm wondering, how does a wave, you, you know, you're standing there at the beach or maybe you're in the sea and you're watching this big one about to arrive and at some point, obviously, it crashes but how does all that water stay up in that wave formation as it moves without being pulled back into the ocean? Yeah, that's a great question. So when waves get closer to the shore, they really change their behaviour. So it's very different behaviour when they're close to the shore. And the reason is because they start to feel the bottom. 
When they're traveling in the open ocean, they don't really experience the bottom of the ocean at all. They don't, they're not affected by it. But as soon as they start getting closer to the shore, that bottom starts to play a big role. And in particular, the depth, changing water depth, will cause the waves to slow down. Mm -hmm. As the waves get closer to the shore and it gets shallower, the waves start to slow down. And what that means is that those wave crests, which were nicely spread apart in the open ocean, are now starting to crumple up together, a bit like a car is in a traffic jam. That, that causes all of that energy to sort of just build up. Just like you were describing, you start to get the water building up and building mm. up, and eventually, of course, it will crash. Mm. Uh, got Dr. Shane Keating here. Now, Panola wonders, why do waves come in sets of three? I've always wondered. Do they? I haven't noticed that myself. I've, I've been told that waves in the Mediterranean come in sets of seven. <laughs> so it de- I think it, it depends a little bit on exactly where you are on the coast and exactly what the, the local conditions are like. Uh, but it wouldn't surprise me to see um, sets of three or five or seven or more coming in because the waves do tend to come in these groups of waves, as we call them. They come in sets of, of a couple of waves or maybe three or four or five. Yeah. Mm. Uh, now, Josh says, can wind chop waves be modelled using exponential asymptotics. I don't know. We'll have a clue what that means. (laughs) Well, I think that uh, Josh is going to have to do a fair bit of work on exponential asymptotics to get wind chop waves. Uh, (laughs) But I encourage you. What are exponential (laughs) asymptotics? So exponential asymptotics are a a particular applied mathematics technique that are used to try and understand relatively small waves in the ocean. So far, we've been talking about pretty big waves, classic uh, water waves that form from cyclones and hurricanes and travel across the ocean. But you can also have very gentle waves. For example, think about the waves that form behind a boat as it moves through Mm. the water, something called a a Kelvin wake. It's a very classic um, pattern of waves that forms. Um, And you you will have seen that delta shape behind a boat or or a duck in the pond. And you can model those kind of waves using this mathematical theory, exponential asymptotics. Now, there's a few different kinds of waves, Shane. Uh, there's spilling breakers, plunging breakers, spilling waves, surface waves. Can you describe what all of these are for us? Sure. I guess when you're sort of a fluid dynamicist and applied mathematician, everything is waves. <laughs> you think about waves all the time. Um, so when, when you're thinking about waves breaking, scientists typically divide them up into a maybe a couple of, maybe three different kinds of breaking waves. You've got your your spilling breakers. Spilling breakers are those waves that kind of gently crumble, a little bit of uh, foam on the top of the of the wave and then they'll then they'll die out so they don't they don't form that big plunging breaker as we call it when you have the wave completely overturning so those are the kind of waves that surfers uh, dream about <laughs> um, and then you have a type of wave called a surging breaker these are waves that um, don't really break so much as they lift up so if you think about what a wave would look like as it hits a pier or a wharf it sort of lifts up against the pier or wharf and then it sinks down again so you can see the kind of the difference between those three different kinds mm-hmm. of waves spilling breakers gently crumbling away, plunging breakers, forming a beautiful little barrel or closed uh, pattern, Um, and then surging breakers. The difference between those is how steeply the ocean floor, the seafloor, is rising. Okay, so what leads to which type? So if you've got nice, gentle, rising uh, beach, you'll get this, the spilling breakers. Mm-hmm. A little bit more steep is when you get plunging breakers. And then when you have an almost vertical increase in, in the height, like a, like a wharf or a cliff, that's when you'll get surging breakers. Mm. Um, now, Pam wonders, can you explain a rogue wave? Oh, rogue waves, yes. Yeah. So these are fascinating and a bit mysterious. Um, they're 
unusually large waves, um, so dangerously large waves, that can come out of nowhere with very little predictability. Um, they have been associated with some pretty serious shipping uh, disasters. They can cause a lot of damage to, to um, ocean um, equipment, infrastructure, as you might imagine. Um, and they're very rare, right? So they're, mm. they're really not very common at all and very hard to predict. Um, and uh, interestingly enough, they come in two different kinds. You can have rogue waves that are very high, Mm-hmm. And we're talking here of maybe 10 meters or even 20 meters, really very, very large, dangerous waves. Um, or you can have rogue waves that are very low. In other words, it's not a crest, it's actually a trough. And that can be equally as dangerous as a crest. So what causes the trough? So it's the same. It's basically the same idea that you've right. got uh, um, waves are, are, are interacting with one another kind of sitting on top of each other and they pile up and we don't fully understand exactly why they do this, but they can either pile up a whole bunch of crests will add up together and make a big crest all of a sudden um, with, un- with no warning, or you can have a whole bunch of troughs adding up together and forming a big trough. So what are the dangers of the troughs? So the, so in any, in either a crest or a trough, what you're, what's going to happen here is that the, the, the ship that you're in or the, the infrastructure is going to be overwhelmed by, by the, by the crest, by the water. In a trough, the, sh- the ship will sink down, of course. And yeah, it's g- give, give me the willies a little bit yeah. thinking about it, but then it'll be inundated by the water around it. Interestingly enough, these kinds of waves also happen under the water as well. You can get uh, what we call internal waves. The waves that you see at the beach, we call those surface waves. But you can also get waves inside the ocean and they're called internal waves. And they're particularly important when you have strong changes in the density uh, of the of the ocean, maybe you've got some nice warm light fluid sitting on top of some cold, salty, heavy fluid. Now those waves can also form rogue waves, and in fact, we suspect that might have been behind some submarine disasters in recent years. Wow, Dr. Shane Keating is here, associate professor of applied mathematics at the University of New South Wales. But you're also an oceanographer, aren't you? That's right. Uh, Yep. And uh, yes, knows all sorts of things about waves, which uh, he's sharing with you tonight on Nightlife. Can we predict where waves will will start? Um, I mean, you know, can we can we if we say we we often get waves wash up on Bondi? Do we know that because we know that there's a particular part of the uh, the Pacific, I guess, where waves tend to start from? That's right. Yeah. I mean, it's it's interesting because the ocean seems so turbulent and, and messy and unpredictable. But in fact, waves are highly predictable. And if, as anybody who's looked at a surf forecast uh, will know, uh, you can really rely on, on, surf, on surf forecasts to predict when a big swell will be coming in. Now, there's lots of different environmental conditions that can change exactly how the waves will, will break. You know, it depends a little bit on the on the, the direction of the swell. It'll depend a lot on the wind um, and other factors like that. But when that swell comes in, that's highly predictable. Okay. So particular times of the year, this beach is going to be getting big waves. Well, we know in advance because it takes time for the waves to travel right. across the ocean. So if there's a big storm, say, in the Southern Ocean, and uh, we can see, uh, we can measure and we can predict in our models the swell coming from that traveling across the ocean. And you can see when it hits different points along the coast. So how fast is a wave going to be traveling then? Waves travel at, uh, you know, maybe 10 meters per second. They, they travel pretty fast. That's fast. Uh, but it'll take, a few, it'll take them, you know, several, uh, it'll take them a week or more to travel very long distances. Okay. Now, how are the big waves made? Like the waves that you see people surfing in big wave surfing, says Daniel in Geelong. 
Right. So there's a couple, there's many um, places around the world that are mm. famous for their big waves. And what's really what's um, really controlling the size of those waves, apart from, of course, uh, that swell we talked about before, what's really controlling the size of those waves is, again, it's the effect of the the, the seafloor and how the seafloor is shaped. So we already talked a little bit about how as the seafloor rises, it causes waves to sort of pile up energy. But you can get all sorts of interesting effects from different kinds of seafloor. So for example, if you've got a very deep water channel that comes quite close to the shore, um, you can have energy from quite deep in the ocean suddenly rising and being funneled towards the shore. So there's a number of well-known surf spots, uh, for example, Mavericks in, in Northern California, which has a lot of wave energy coming in from a deep water channel that brings it, that right up close to the shore. The other thing that's quite um, interesting about these big waves is how they're kind of sculpted and focused as they get closer and closer to the shore. So again, taking that example of Mavericks in Northern California, um, there's a, a sort of a horseshoe-shaped uh, seafloor pattern. It's like a plateau. It's a bit shallower there. And so it's on either side are two deep water channels. And um, deep water channels uh, tend to allow the waves to travel a bit more quickly and the plateau allows the waves to travel a bit faster. So what happens is that you get this um, curvature in the wave front that causes it to, fo to, to sort of get focused and then it peaks up into this uh, giant, um, you know, almost five-story tall wave. Uh, waves also behave differently depending on what kind of uh, topography they're coming into, right? If you're coming up to a headland, the wave might behave differently than coming up onto a beach. That's right. We call this wave refraction. And you probably are familiar with the idea of refraction when you look through mm. a glass of water or you go to the pool and you see it appears that light gets bent um, by, by moving through, different, by moving through um, different media. The same thing happens with waves. Waves can be bent or refracted by... Um, moving through medium media with different speeds, right? So if you think a little bit about uh, a wave approaching a headland and as uh, the wave crest approaches the headland, um, part of the wave might be a bit closer to the shore and part of the wave might be a little bit further away from the shore, right? Um, and what happens is that the piece that's closer to the shore slows down because it's in shallower water mm -hmm. and the piece that's further from the shore speeds up, right? It's because it's, it's in deeper water. So that causes the, the whole wave to start turning. The analogy I like to, to use is imagine you're, you're watching a, a marching band and they're turning a corner. The person on the inside of the corner starts to walk kind of slowly and the person uh -huh. on the outside of the corner starts to walk a bit faster so that they can maintain their front. Same thing happens with ocean waves. And this actually causes ocean waves to bend as they, as they come towards the shore so that they always break parallel to the shore. No matter which direction they're coming from, the waves will always break parallel to the shore. Will waves always travel in the same direction or would that depend very much on which way the wind's blowing? Well, the waves will travel in every direction um, away from where they're formed. So think mm -hmm. about throwing a, a pebble into a pond. You'll see that the waves will travel outwards from mm -hmm. that location in, in every direction. Of course, we're on the coast, so we'll see the waves coming to us from where the source is, which is typically a storm. Mm. Now, um, a couple of people, uh, this is one caller, says uh, when walking along the beach, you see an area where there are lots of shells and then in another it's all bare. Is that indicative of a rip? And someone else wants to know how's a rip formed? Yeah, rip currents are, are um, of course, very dangerous. They're, they're Australia's uh, number one uh, coastal hazard, in fact, 
rips take more Australian lives than bushfires, cyclones, floods, wow. shark attacks, yeah. all combined. Um, so it's really important to have a good understanding of, of rips and, uh, you know, Surf, Livers, Surf uh, Lifesavers Australia has lots of really great campaigns and information on their website if you'd like to learn more about rips. Um, basically, rips form because uh, when waves break, of course, they, they bring water. They push water up onto the shore. So the water is a little bit higher on the shore and it needs to, you know, uh, retreat back out to sea. And it does so by finding the lowest point, right? Just like any other any other uh, um, scenario where you've got water flowing, it tries to go down the lowest point. And that'll be typically some part of the beach where, which is a little bit lower than the rest. Um, I'm not sure about your caller's question about, about shells, um, but that's a great suggestion of, of why you might get shells aligned with rip currents because they might be gathered... Um, uh, away from where the where it's a bit deeper because the water is running out, but I'm not, I'm not quite sure about that. Um, but yeah, so th these rips form because the water is is being pushed up all along the beach, but then it retreats along a narrow current, and um, that's what why they're quite dangerous because they can sweep people out to sea, uh, and it, and it, if you're a panicked swimmer, you know you're gonna you're gonna try and swim against that current, and that's of course when things get dangerous. Yeah. Uh, what is the advice now? Well, first of all, and foremost, swim between the flags, right? So yeah. go go to a a, um, a beach with a with a surf lifesaver and swim between the flags. Look for the flags. Uh, the surf lifesavers are much better than you are at identifying a rip. In fact, something like two thirds of Australians cannot identify a rip, um, and they're they're not, it's not obvious. You could look for, for example, uh, a dark patch or a dark channel. Uh, you can look for um, smooth water between ripples. Um, but really mm. the best advice is to swim between the flags or yeah. you know what, if you're uncertain, stay out, enjoy mm. the beach from a distance. Mm. Now, can you talk to about dodge tides? Danny from Adelaide says Adelaide's one of the only places on earth to experience a dodge tide. Is this in your wheelhouse? <laughs> I've never heard of a dodge tide before. I'd love to learn more. Okay. Well, <laughs> I think that's a no to answering the question, Danny. We might have to find out more. Tell me what a dodge tide is, um, Danny. I'm, I'm not familiar with it either. Um, you are on Nightlife on ABC Radio. Suzanne Hill with you on this Saturday night, Friday night. It's Friday night. Uh, if you've got a question for uh, Shane about waves, give me a call. one three hundred eight hundred triple two. He can also talk about card shuffling and applied mathematics. So look, Give it a bell, uh, 1-300-800-222 or 0467-922-702. Um, before we, um, I do have uh, David on the line who wants to ask about maths uh, forecasting weather, but I, before we leave waves entirely, I do want to talk about the American oceanographer Walter Monk, who uh, died in 2019. He is often called the Einstein of the oceans, and he has left a, a legacy that surfers probably use all the time. Tell us about him. So, yeah, Walter Monk. Uh, extraordinary man. He lived to 101, uh, was probably the most important oceanographer of the 20th century. And he invented the surf forecast. So we talked earlier on about how effective surf forecasts are at predicting when swells come in and how waves break given the particular shape uh, of, of a particular coast. Um, and that was all invented by Walter Monk for the, um, the D-Day landings. In fact, he was working for the U.S., um, defense forces and uh, as, as part of their um, research into ocean wave breaking and he um, helped to um, develop surf forecasts to help with amphibious landings because of course amphibious landings are very strongly affected by the wave conditions. 
And so I think famously when it came to World War II and D-Day, I think it got put off by a, a day from the initial plan because of the weather. Was, was he part of that? The weather was a factor in it, but in fact, yes, very much so. The, the wave conditions and the tides were v- even more important. And so they delayed uh, by a day um, from June the 5th to June the 6th, which was the, the, the day of the, um, the Allied landings. Mm. And then I know in 1963, he led a team of scientists in the study of ocean swells. They put stations to measure waves uh, in a giant circle from New Zealand to Alaska. What kinds of things did they find out through that? Yeah, so they, this is uh, Walter Monk with a, a team of scientists spread across what we call the Great Circle. So this is a line across the surface of the Earth connecting different points by the shortest route. Mm-hmm. Um, so you can think of the equator as an example of a Great Circle. In this case, they were looking at a Great Circle going from um, Antarctica all the way up to Alaska. And the reason they were looking at that was because they wanted to track ocean waves as they move across entire ocean basins. So they set themselves up on a series of islands. I think, I think the first one actually was in um, New Zealand, uh, but all, you know, including Hawaii, American Samoa, and all the way to Alaska, making measurements of things like water pressure and other things um, as, as a wave was created in, you know, in Antarctica and tracked across that entire uh, ocean basin. So have you heard of a neap tide? A neap tide, yes, yes. Apparently that's uh, what they call, Uh that's the dodge tide of South Australia. (laughs) It's a South Australian term for a neap tide. Very good. Okay, so can you explain neap tides to us? Sure, well, I mean, tides, of course, we can um, change in their amplitude over time. And the reason they do that is because uh, tides are affected by the sun and the moon. Right, so the t- tides are formed by uh, the, the sun pulling at the ocean or the moon pulling at the ocean. And when that um, pulling is aligned, either because the sun is directly opposite the moon or the sun is in the same direction as the moon, uh, then you can get an unusually large tide, which we call the neap tide. And, or Sorry, we call it a spring tide. And uh, when the moon and the sun are uh, at right angles to each other, you get the opposite. You get, you get weaker tides. Yeah. Now, uh, with a tsunami... And the uh, that wave, is that formed in a different way? Because aren't they often undersea? Yeah, so a tsunami is formed when, usually when you have a fairly large subsidence of the ocean floor. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, that will cause, you know, an enti- the uh, whole patch, um, maybe hundreds of kilometres wide, of the ocean to drop or, or to rise, depending on exactly what happens. And then that... Um, rise or lowered water level will then propagate away from that location at extremely high speeds. Um, tsunamis can travel as fast as a as a jet, as a passenger jet. Wow. Yeah. Um, and so they could travel, you know, across the Pacific Ocean in something like 20 hours. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, of course, one of the challenges with tsunamis is that when they're in the open ocean, when we're in the deep ocean, they have very, very small amplitude. They're, they're not very easy to measure. Um, you really have to have dedicated equipment to try and measure them. Uh, and then the danger is when they get closer to the shore that they, that they, um, that they rise and can mm-hmm. inundate an area. What's the technical difference between a tsunami and a big wave? So, so the, the, the main difference is the wavelength of the mm-hmm. wave. So a tsunami is an extremely long wavelength wave, maybe 100 kilometres long. Right? Wow. Yeah. Okay. And uh, whereas a regular wave will have a wavelength of maybe, you know, 10 metres, 100 metres, something like that. Now, that has a big difference because um, very long wavelength waves um, 
experience the ocean floor, even in the open ocean, right? So a 100-kilometer-long wave can feel the ocean floor four kilometers down. So it travels in a very different way from our surface waves, which are basically just undulations on the top of the ocean. It doesn't re- they don't really feel the bottom at all. Shane, do we know what the largest wave ever recorded is? I believe actually uh, fairly recently there was a 22-meter wave off the coast of New Zealand measured by a wave boy. And how does that compare, say, to a wave from some of those tsunamis that we know about that have happened? So, so tsunami waves look very different mm. from, from the, the, those kind of classic surface waves. For one, um, they're more like a tide. They're more like a suddenly rising tide or a suddenly dropping tide. Um, so this is, uh, of course, what can be quite dangerous is because uh, you might have a, um, a suddenly dropping water level and people will follow the water out. And then, of course, when the wave comes back in again, they can get inundated. But it's not like a wall of water. It's more like a suddenly rising tide that, that is unstoppable. Mm. All right, let's leave the waves behind. Although if you've got any more questions to uh, chuck at us, uh, 0467 922 702 or 1-300-800-222. Yeah, we're going to climb off the surfboard. We're going to slip into the casino, get into our tuxes because you're going to talk to us about the science of card shuffling. Now, there's that technique everyone wants to master, but few have where you perfectly intertwine half the deck with the other half, you know, with cards folding in from each hand in turn. Does that actually have a proper name, that technique? It's called the perfect shuffle. The perfect um, shuffle. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> well, so that's, I should probably um, distinguish that from from the, the kind of classic shuffle that you will have seen uh, where you take a kind of a rough, roughly divide the deck in half and then you kind of thumb together the cards uh, with a nice zippy sound and then often people will finish it with what they call a bridge finish where they'll they'll kind of pile the cards into a I feel like you should have, we should have had cards in here to, to <laughs> explain as we go. So that's called a riffle shuffle mm-hmm. um, and uh, that has some really fascinating uh, mathematical properties which I'm sure we're going to talk to, uh, talk about in a second but that's to be distinguished from what I described as the perfect shuffle which is actually something of, of an illusion, a magic trick. In fact it was invented by by magicians uh, many centuries ago. Um, and a perfect shuffle works by take your 52-card deck and split it into two exactly equal piles of 26 cards. And then you interleave the cards one by one. Mm-hmm. Right? So the top card goes on top and then the, sec- the, and then the second card is the card from the other deck and you, you do more like a kind of one, two, one, two, one, two, one, two, one, two. Um, now that is not a random shuffle. There's nothing mm-hmm. random about that. There's nothing. No, because you know that if you're interleaving, you you actually be able to figure out exactly what the cards are. That's exactly right. Yeah. In other words, you could fi- if you if you you could easily track a card as it moves through the deck, right? Yeah. Um, but it looks random. <laughs> it if you've ever seen anyone do it, it certainly looks like it's random, but it's not. In fact, um, what you can do is if you if you perform a perfect shuffle uh, eight times it will actually unshuffle the deck. So you'll get back to the original order. Now, this was proven by um, a bloke who I think is, um, you can tell us about, Percy uh, Diaconis, um, who's known as the world's foremost card shuffling expert. How did he, he prove that? So per- Percy Diaconis is a, is a professor of, of, of statistics mm-hmm. in Stanford. Um, fascinating, fascinating fellow. He's a, a former magician, actually, who turned mathematician later in life and became very interested in um, the mathematics of card shuffling. And, and as you pointed out, he, he's sort of the for- foremost expert in this topic now. Um, and um, he, he became very interested in 
uh, the perfect shuffle actually as as quite a young boy um he he was fascinated by by magic and he he met a computer scientist who was visiting from from the UK who had mastered this particular kind of shuffle and he really wanted to understand how, why did how does it work how can you do eight perfect shuffles in a row and get it all to come back again um it's actually quite a hard magic trick to do uh, I, I, I certainly can't do it. <laughs> um, very few people. Have you tried? Uh, I've got, I've, I've done it with the, you know, one by one by one by hand, but yeah. it takes me, you know, <laughs> it's not a very effective magic trick if it takes 10 minutes to set up, but he can do it in 10 seconds, right? So you can do eight, eight shuffles in, in a little over a minute and a half. So it's, it's quite, it's quite an effective, um, uh, trick. Um, but, but yeah, so he became fascinated in this and, and, uh, you know, the underlying mathematics here is that, um, because it's because it's sort of de- what we call deterministic. It's not random. You can kind of track how cards move, right? And so you can mm. you can sort of see well the first card after one shuffle becomes the second card, and the second card after another shuffle it becomes the fifth card, and after another shuffle it becomes the eighth card and the twenty third card. You can kind of track them mm. almost by you know sort of tracking how they go, and eventually they come back, right? Every single card will eventually come back to its original place. Um, but they're all doing it in different different sort of times, right? So so maybe you might have two cards swapping. One, two, one, two, one. These two cards just swap every time you, you do a perfect shuffle. Or you might have four cards swapping places uh, one after another. So you do four shuffles to get those back. And it turns out that the most you ever get is eight. So you get eight shuffles in a row, eight cards swap places, and they come back to where they started. So it's almost like you've got a game of musical chairs, right? So everybody's yeah. just standing up and move, moving around and then sitting down in a different chair. <laughs> and they're doing that eight times and they come back right to where they, they started off. So what is the most effective method for shuffling cards so that you will end up with as as random a, a, a hand as possible? So the riffle shuffle that we just okay. described, which is that which is that kind of uh, zippy shuffle where you use you use your thumbs to to flick together the corners of two roughly equally spa- uh, sized decks, um, that's the most effective shuffle. But there is a catch: in order to get the deck sufficiently random, you need to do a riffle shuffle seven times. What? Really? Yeah. And this is actually Percy Diaconis's uh-huh. probably his most famous result, um, that proving that in order to get it random and, and, you know, basically by any statistical measure that you can think of, random enough, you have to do a riffle shuffle seven times. Now, almost nobody does it seven times, right? You go to a casino, you might see them do it two or three or four times. But the problem is that that still has um, ascending and descending flights of cards. Cards that started off close together are still together. So in order to be able to try and minimize that as much as possible, you got to do at least seven. Any more than seven, well, it's already random. There's not much point. It's not going to do much more more randomness. <laughs> now, I want you to tell us a story, um, and this is from a casino, I think, in Las Vegas, where uh, Percy Diaconis got called in to try and help because there were some um, hustlers who hacked into a card shuffling machine. Yeah, that's right. So um, th- there was a there was a card shuffling machine that was being used by by a casino that um, that had a little a little window on the side of it, um, a glass window on the side of it, and I guess the idea here was that the the customers will be wowed by all the machinery on the inside. Uh, uh, but some rather clever uh, folks uh, smuggled a little camera in, and were able to film the card shuffling machine at work, and then broadcast that or beam that to somebody waiting outside, who was able to play back the video in slow motion. And figure out from that the order of the cards, which was then transmitted back in. Gosh, they had to be doing that quickly. (laughs) They were doing. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Um, So these 
hustlers were, had managed to sort of hack the machine, if you like, figure it out and, and get a, a little bit of an advantage uh, and actually made away with millions of dollars from the casino before they were eventually caught. So um, the, the company that manufactured this card shuffling machine, of course, was extremely disturbed by this and um, so had designed a new machine that their engineers promised them, shuffled the cards perfectly randomly with one pass. In other words, you put the deck, in, deck of cards in once and it shuffles them. And this machine was going to be opaque, so you wouldn't be able to film it. That's right. So yeah. it'd be uh, literally a black box. Um, but they wanted to make sure, these casino, these uh, uh, card shuffling machine executives wanted to make sure that the, the machine really was actually randomly shuffling the, the deck of cards. And so he invited, they invited Percy Diaconis and his colleague, Susan Holmes uh, from Stanford to come and uh, come and visit their Las Vegas um, showroom and peer inside the machine. And they quickly discovered that, in fact, the machine was not really shuffling the cards. It merely looked like it was really shuffling the cards. And they were able to prove this by actually uh, coming up with a simple system where they could guess the next card coming out of the deck. And they were able to do this successfully about maybe eight times, eight, nine, ten times. Enough so it looked more than random. Enough so yeah. that they could have easily made a lot of money in a casino. Yes. Mm-hmm. So the, the company shelved that particular model and went with a completely different design. <laughs> so it's very important business in a casino, being able to shuffle randomly. It is a big business. Of course, you've got um, the, the card players who can take advantage of any little piece of information to give them a slight edge on the house. And you've got, also got cro- crooked dealers who can uh, have accomplices uh, to, to sort of beat the house that way as well. Um, so, you know, there's, there is, of course, also a famous story of some Harvard and MIT students who were able to use some uh, knowledge about um, cards and uh, the likelihood of cards um, to, to make quite a lot of money on blackjack. Um, and of course, what they were doing was not actually illegal because they weren't using any technology. Mm. It's just not, it was frowned upon by the casinos. Mm. Now, I know that uh, Percy Diaconis has said he will have seven shuffles suffice carved onto his grave. <laughs> What's that about? So again, this is about the uh, seven shuffles, seven riffle shuffles to make uh, a deck of cards uh-huh. sufficiently random that, uh, yeah, that it, um, that it's statistically indistinguishable from well, it. Well, there is random. a contribution that he has made to the world. <laughs> and it's interesting, stuff. you know, I mean, a deck of cards is sort of a fascinating thing to think about because, um, you know, 52 cards, there are an enormous number of ways of organizing 52 mm. cards. In fact, you can think about the, the first card, there's 52 different possibilities. The second card, there's 51. 50 for the next card, 49, 48. So if you multiply all those numbers together, 52 times 51 times 50 times 49, 48, all the way down to one, that tells you how many different possible ways there are to, uh, to order, order that deck. Order yeah. that deck. How, how big do you think that number is? Uh, <laughs> a lot. <laughs> it's pretty big. So we call that 52 factorial. If, if you remember from your high school maths, it, it looks like 52 with a little exclamation after it. So it's very emphatic. 52 factorial is a number with 68 digits. What? 68 digits. 68 digits. That's a lot of permutations for your deck of cards. So to put that in context, that's more than all of the atoms in our galaxy. Wow. That's a lot. Okay, I'm flummoxed. Um, Shane, I'm afraid we do have to move on, but can I thank you so much for coming in and talking waves and cards with us on Nightlife tonight. My pleasure. Uh, That is Dr Shane Keating, uh, Associate Professor of Applied Mathematics at the University of New South Wales. 
You've been listening to a Nightlife podcast. For more great conversations about the issues that impact you, as well as features on travel and food, head to the Nightlife webpage. You'll find it at abc.net.au slash nightlife. You don't need to be a night owl to enjoy the nightlife. 